Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best-selling LED light bulbs. Our four-pack of LED bulbs is $9.99, and our two-pack of LED floodlights is only $12.99. Buy one, get one free. There's no limit on how much you can save, so stock up now. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free on long-lasting 10-year LED bulbs, now through Monday, only at your neighborhood Ace. See participating stores for details. Locked on Heat is an intelligent and entertaining daily podcast covering the Miami Heat and the NBA. Like I said, it's daily, five times a week. So subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, because we'll be there every morning waiting for you. You can email the show at LockedOnHeat at gmail.com, where you can send us questions for our weekly mailbag, inquire about advertising, or just say hi. And finally, we're asking you, the listener, to go on iTunes and leave us a rating, and even a review if you're feeling particularly generous. It helps. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the Locked On Heat Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. My name is Wes Goldberg, editor at allyoucanheat.com. With me on the other line, as always, it's David Ramil. How you doing, buddy? I am doing great, man. This is an exciting opportunity. I am very excited about today's show. Yeah, because we have somebody else on the line, writer at CBS Sports. It's Matt Moore. How hey you guys, doing? how are y'all? I'm good, man. We got a lot to talk about. We're going to get the outside perspective on a lot of um, the craziness of the Heat's offseason. Dwayne Wade, Hassan Whiteside's big new contract, if they can make the playoffs. Dion Waiters, the Waiters Peninsula, of course, and all that stuff. But let's start right there with the big story. Um, Dwayne Wade, I mean, David and I have talked about Wade at length, about how his move was has been perceived by fans, by national media, by fans of the NBA in general, and all this stuff. And I, we're really interested, Matt, in your thoughts on Dwayne Wade. We, you tweet a lot about Dwayne Wade, and you, you've mentioned that you're a fan of his to, and a fan of his game. What was your, I guess, first initial reaction, and, and how, how and if that changed um, compared to now? Uh, Wade's like a top five player for me all time in terms of enjoying watching him play. Uh, he right. thrashed my Missouri Tigers in the NCAA tournament back in 2003. And like <laughs> since that moment, I've been like, that guy is real. That guy is great. And he was he was so phenomenal in Miami. I always I my one of my favorite NBA teams for a regular season to have watched was actually the year before Shaq came when it was Karan and Lamar sure. and yeah. Wade. That team was so much fun. Um, I speak of that very flawed team in kind of hollow tone. So. Uh, I, I'm a big Wade guy. I was stunned. I really was surprised. Uh, not so much when it happened because I knew that it was probably likely to. Um, I was talking to people, sources close to the Nuggets, who had told me, you know, no, this is he. There is a very good chance that he is leaving. We feel that he's probably using us as leverage, but these conversations are not insubstantial. This is not just lip service. There are real conversations being had right now. Um, and so when it finally did occur, there was still this kind of shock, though. Just I, I always thought at the last minute that Riley would kind of come in and be like, okay, fine, let's let's stop the nonsense, let's stop messing around and take care of business. You're not leaving, you don't want to go, you are going to be outside the building someday in a statue, let's just go ahead and take care of this. Clearly, you feel strongly on this matter, okay, and you know, I'm not necessarily surprised that the Heat 
stuck to their principles on what they felt was the right decision to keep them flexible for a championship or to at least be in contention to be a contender and to keep that window open. I am very surprised that they were willing to part with Wade of those options. I would have thought that at the end of the day, they've been like, okay, we can't keep us on and Dwayne. Uh, okay, let's go ahead and, you know, Hassan's got some question marks. Let's go ahead and let him walk. We're not going to let the franchise guy go. So I, I was very surprised. It's kind of heartbreaking. I talked to David Fisdale at, at Summer League, and he was really emotional about it. I mean, he was really emotional about it for both sides, and just he said it was heartbreaking um, the way that it went down. He felt for he, he talked to both sides, and he said that they were both really upset that it just really was upsetting that this is the way that it all went down, but neither one of them could really justify any other course of action. And you can understand it from both sides. It just seems stunning mm-hmm. that such a great relationship for such a long time could reach this point. Yeah, it, it's weird also because you, you hear Pat Riley talking about it afterwards in, in his press conference recently saying that he wished he could have done more and even went so far as to discuss, you know, paddling over to the Mediterranean to try and, and bring back Dwayne. But, you know, clearly it was a part of his plan all along. And so you, you wonder how much, how honest he's actually being about the whole situation and whether or not this was, you know, I think in, in retrospect, we all see that this was clearly part of Miami and Riley's plan, you know, to, to kind of part ways, maybe not as abruptly as they did, or maybe, you know, I don't know, not as severely, but, you know, clearly this was something that they wanted to do. And, and you wonder, you know, what, what was the plan moving forward? Why didn't they, why couldn't they bring back Dwayne Wade? I mean, I, they could have paid him as much as they wanted to and still had a, a, you know, a strong team. I'm not sure exactly from the Heat fan perspective. It's just so, it's so muddled and there's just so many different narratives associated with the whole situation. And, and it clearly, like you pointed out, you know, the face of the franchise, you, you expect them to be there for a number of years moving forward. But then you also, you also have this, you know, this godlike figure in Riley that the Heat fan base respects so much and idolizes and whether or not he dropped the ball. And that's now the way that this, the conversation has been shaped over the last few weeks. Yeah, and that's interesting. And, and I see a lot of, like, in Riley we trust and stuff like that. Sure. But I, do see as, I do see as much, you know, consternation over how could it really have come to this point. Um, I, I kind of get back to the idea of, oh, all right, look, let, let's say that, that you re-sign him for $20 million for... 25 million and all of a sudden a superstar comes available next year blake griffin says hey south beach sounds really nice or whoever it is says hey this looks like a really good opportunity for me at that point you can trade goran dragic like you did this when lebron signed on you can trade anybody you know, if it, if you get an upgrade, if there is a free agent that comes available and says, I want to go there, you can trade us on wide side. You can trade Goran Dragic. You can trade whoever it is that you need to trade. You can trade Tyler Johnson. I'm sure the Nets would be happy to have him. Like, there are always going to be these options available to you. You close that off. You just said, no, we want to keep the space open. And the other thing is, you got to be really careful with the whole free agency thing, because once you start missing... I feel like there is a a higher chance of you continuing to miss. And Dallas is a great example of this. Right. Who kept their options open year after year after year. And it was, we're going to get Dwight, and we're going to get Darren, and we're going to get Mella. Like, they kept taking these shots, and they just kept missing. And the result was that they've stayed in the playoffs, but they're irrelevant. And with Miami at this point, 
is there a, look i have a lot of faith in eric spolstra and i have sure. a, a lot of belief in justice winslow making a leap and i like a lot of their pieces but there is a real concern with me that look even if you do manage to make the playoffs are you a threat am i if if i'm boston if i'm toronto if i'm charlotte if i'm detroit you know going into the playoffs the heat were a team that i was like i want no part of it, it, toronto it, if Whiteside doesn't go down, even with as much as as, jo- as Jonas Valanciunas' injury hurt them. If Whiteside doesn't go down, I think Miami wins that series. Miami was dangerous, and a lot of that was Wade. And now yes. I look at this team, and I'm like, it's not it's not just Wade. You lost Wade, and you lost Dang, and those are two guys that played really well last year. Um, and you know, Stadmeyer played well, but you can replace him, and you got some okay guys on the bench. But I just look at it and I'm like, I don't think you're dangerous. And if you're not dangerous, why is a team coming there? If you got Dwayne Wade to sell a free agent, that's one thing. But a free agent is not going to be like, I really want to talk to Hassan Whiteside and see what he has to say about my future there. I feel like the the that haul in 2010, the big three, LeBron, Bosh, and Wade all signing Miami, almost jaded the league. And I said this even before LeBron left, and a lot in regards to Houston and Dallas and these teams that – we're just trying to land these big fish. Even the Lakers, when they tried to make those trades for Dwight Howard and Nash and all those guys, like a lot of organizations, I thought looked at what the Heat did and were like, "Okay, if if we have the cap space, they will come." Type thing, and we can get our own big three to battle that big three. And I, I just think that that was the exception, not the rule. Like the whole idea of LeBron Wade and Bosh teaming up in one summer was a novelty, and I think. That's even now trickled down to like what you're saying to the Heat and to Pat Riley and to that organization saying like we already did it once, let's go ahead and do it again. Now I don't think that there's any doubt that Riley has uh, appeal and that he has an ability to make big moves. I mean he swung for Shaq, he got he got the big three. I mean you could consider Goran Dragic a big move, I guess. Um, you know he's got that ability to do that. But I, I'm with I'm with you. I think if you don't have Wade, who was and need, and wanted more credit for bringing the big three to South Beach in the first place, you don't have them there. Yeah, I mean, are guys really flocking to play with Hassan Whiteside? I mean, maybe Justice Winslow becomes that guy. I think with Wade leaving, it's a really a hard reset for this franchise. Yeah, I mean, I, I, like I said, I love Justice, and he's. I, I look forward to, to watching him year after year. I think his ceiling as a versatile player for everything the, the league is going to mm-hmm. is extremely high. Justice is not Dwayne Wade. Like Dwayne Wade, no. out of the box, you were like, "Holy crap, this kid can play." And Shaq went there, and Shaq talked about it being Dwayne's team. And right. LeBron doesn't go there if it's not for Dwayne Wade. And Goran Dragic doesn't want to go to Miami if not for Dwayne Wade. Like Wade is instrumental in all of these decisions, and and Riley is just as much there. And just as much of, of a genius and an architect, but Riley is also very much of when you get to a certain age in this league, you do not want to screw with long processes. Mm-hmm. Like it just, you don't have the patience for it. You're like, I don't, I don't want to deal with this. I just want to, I want to worry about winning games. I want to worry about winning championships. And that whole like mentality of we, you know, we just focus on championships is only possible when you always have the fallback of no matter what, we have this guy. And neither Goran Dragic nor Hassan Whiteside, even though like 
I, I did a lot of digging on Whiteside, and he continued like his back half of the season was incredible. And I think that if 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 his mentality stays in the right place now that he got paid, he can be a top five center in this league. Neither of those guys has the impact of Dwayne Wade, who came in and not only was so great from a play perspective, but Wade carried with him, I'm a superstar, I'm a leader, get behind me, and we're going to go. He was ready from the get-go to do that. And these guys, I don't really, are. they're not there, despite where they are at in their careers. Right, that, that's a good point, because I think Whiteside, if you listen to Riley and everything he said about his development, he sees him taking on more of a role. And and one of the things that we've discussed is how much of a larger piece can he become for this team? Not just the off-the-court stuff as far as being able to lure free agents, but what else can he possibly do that he hasn't shown? And there's this elite-level athleticism that you know Heat fans drool over and that maybe Riley does as, as well. But you wonder... What's the ceiling for a guy like that? I'm curious what you think about about you know Whiteside and how he can ultimately evolve. What's his his you know highest potential and whether or not he can actually reach the next few years? It's really fascinating because there's so much that goes into being a center, uh, yeah. and it takes you a while to get there. It it took Dwight a while to get there. Um, people forget this, but coming off of the 2006 season. Um, or 2007 season, rather, Stan Van Gundy was really critical of Dwight and, and was basically saying, like, hey, you've got to do better. Like, this is that you have got to do better. You need to focus on rebounding and you need to focus on defense. And these are two areas that you've got to improve on. And Stan's really great at coaching. And so he was able to coach him up and turned him into what became the defensive player of the year and the most dominant defensive force, honestly, that we've seen over the past you know, 10 years is Dwight Howard. As good as Kawhi Leonard and Draymond Green are, they all hold a candle to the kind of impact that Dwight held at his max. The difference, though, is that it does take a certain level of instincts and it does take a certain level of mentality. From an athleticism and size standpoint, Hassan's got it. He's already there. But right. understanding all of the complexities of how to lead a defense, how to call out coverages, how to corral, how to not fall for the pump fake and to recognize where the play is going to go once that guard realizes you're in the lane, those are all really complex things that, that guys that have the physical potential never get there. Now, Hassan's shown a, a much better capacity for that than, say, JaVale McGee, who had many of the similar physical talents. <laughs> but there is that kind of gap that you have to be there. You have to be like, he has to be elite. That's the difference. It's like, for them to be really effective, Hassan Whiteside has got to be elite on both ends of the floor if Bosch is out. If Bosch is not out, that changes the whole complexion, and now it, there's a little bit of the pressure taken off because Chris can handle some of that responsibility. Um, offensively, I mean, there, there's just not a lot, lot to dislike about Hassan offensively in terms of his skill set. Decision-making is a different question, but that comes more with continuity, that comes more with coaching, that comes more with all of that. You know, With him being older, some of that is mitigated to a certain degree, but for me, I always get to like, look, it's one thing if Dwight Howard makes a bad decision because Dwight Howard has poor touch. Like As dominant as a player as he is, Dwight never really understood that he just does not have great touch around the basket. I think Hassan has great touch around the rim. Mm. I think he has phenomenal feel for how to get the ball back back in the, in the basket on putbacks and just with little baby hook shots. I think he's got a lot of potential for expanding his game. And so there's all of these things that he can do. The first thing you worry about is can, can a player do this? And Hassan, it's not a question of can. He can do this. But getting to will, will that's really hard. Right. And it's really hard at the age that he's at. 
Yeah, I've, I've called Dwayne Wade the Whiteside Whisperer a couple of times just because he had a way of not only feeding Whiteside the ball, especially on the pick and roll, uh, getting him the ball into the basket where Whiteside was comfortable, and just having a good speed with him in that pick and roll. Um, he got Whiteside a lot of points, and he got he was able to get Whiteside going because you know Whiteside's one of those guys that feeds on momentum. Like once he gets going, he could be absolutely destructive and disruptive, but it does sometimes take him a little bit to get there. Wade was really good at facilitating and helping Whiteside out. I do now wonder, with Wade gone, I mean, as far as Whiteside's potential goes, Goran Dragic, Goran Dragic has to raise his own game and figure out a timing with Whiteside. And they kind of started to figure some stuff out there in the playoffs a little bit before Whiteside got hurt. But, you know, that's going to be a major thing here. I, I, I don't know if Whiteside needs to be the guy, but he also needs to be good enough to be like one of two or the three better best players on a consistent game-to-game basis if the Heat want to be any good. And maybe his ceiling isn't max, you know, peak Dwight Howard or anything like that, but he could be like DeAndre Jordan, who is a very, very good center in this league, um, who does have faults in, in his own game. I think he defends a little bit better on the perimeter, but Whiteside, you know, the, the Heat coaching staff has been trying to get Whiteside there. I mean, how do you think Whiteside fits in, I guess, in in regards to the context of this team with Goran Dragic possibly being the guy that needs to now be the Batman to Whiteside's Robin, so to speak? It's tough just because you have to have a certain personality. you know. And, and one thing I think we saw last year, I saw them early on in the year when they went through Denver, and mm. I was kind of struck by the fact that this was kind of at the low point when his teammates were really sick of him. Like they were just like, he was getting triple doubles and, <laughs> and, and like Bosch was just constantly basically throwing shade at him in the press and being like, yeah, the numbers are great, but, um, but he was kind of starting to turn the corner. I think a lot of it was that once the trade deadline passed, I feel like that was the point where Dwayne was like, okay, like he's here. He's not going anywhere. This is what we're riding with. So I better correct it. Like I gotta get the most out of it because this is what we got to work with. Nothing else is gonna be there. Chris is gone. I got Hassan. This has got to work. Um, I'm not sure that I've ever seen Goran really take that kind of a role. Um, we'll see. It's possible. But the problem is, again, I, I I don't know that Chris has the patience for him, even if he's healthy. And if Chris isn't around, it gets even worse. You really need somebody. It's not just. I will say this is like a weird kind of dynamic. There are some guys that fit really great off the court but just can't play together on the court. And then there's some guys that do the opposite. And then there are some guys that you kind of need both. Like you need them to fit into the culture. Dion Waiters is a good example of this, actually. Um, and so the question is going to be, is there going to be a structure there? And, and look, this possible. Look, maybe Hassan has just matured. You know, maybe Hassan comes into camp and is like, I wanted to get paid. That was my concern. I got paid. I'm ready to win. Because to his credit, like his people informed me that early on in the free agency process that he did not want to go somewhere where he was not going to make the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Like that was that was a big thing to him was I wanted he that it was that he wanted somewhere with a good culture that was committed to winning. Um, he wasn't gonna consider going to like that's why like not to throw shade, but like Sacramento was never gonna be in the conversation. No matter how much money they threw at him they were never going to be in a conversation. He wanted to be 
in somewhere like Miami, and that's a credit to him and a sign of his maturity. So if he commits to that kind of approach, you know, there's no reason that he can't get there on his own. Um, but outside of that, I mean, look, they lost a lot of like between Wade and Lou Aldang, they lost a ton of veteran leadership. Amari's part of that too. Um, they are younger, they are less experienced. It's going to be interesting if Goron comes in and just like this is my team now, then that will really help. But we haven't really seen that from him. Even in Phoenix, it was always it was like it was Bled's team, and Goron just really kind of fit in and made everybody better. Um, that can help, but you really need somebody to come in there. If he, if Hassan isn't 100% plugged in, you need someone to be that voice in the room. And I think that's where they're going to miss Wade the most. Yeah. Yeah. This is, it's a, it's a weird team the way it's currently constructed. Cause I don't know that anybody on the roster, even Chris Bosch necessarily fills that leadership role. I think he's most capable of it, but I don't know that he necessarily held that position in Toronto and he never really had to even during the big three era. Cause there were, louder, more passionate voices in the locker room, including LeBron and Dwayne Wade. So, you know, you look at the way this team is currently filled out and, and you know, if he comes back, clearly, I think that by default, that leadership role falls on him. But if he's not available, then, you know, having to share it between a guy like Goran Dragic, who never has, or Hassan Whiteside, who simply may not be capable of holding that position, you wonder whether or not um, this team is going to have that kind of consistent leadership on a nightly basis. And as much as the good locker room presence as a guy like Udonis Haslam is, since he doesn't play very much, you know, since he's not necessarily going to be able to get in the young guys' ears and, and, and get them to steer towards the right path, this could be a very rudderless team going into next season. And you wonder how much of that falls onto Spolstra. You've talked about him a lot, you know, the, the confidence you have in him. What is it that you think Spolstra can do for this team? You know, I, I mean – He's coached great players. He's coached, you know, teams that are somewhat mediocre, particularly in 2008, 2009, when he had his first coaching stint and he was able to get them towards the playoffs. Do you think he's able to do that with the kind of team that he's currently, you know, has under him? There's all these different levels that you kind of evaluate coaches on to the best of your ability because sure. a lot of, because most of what coaches do, the media does not see. Like, we just don't see the decision making. Um, but from what we know of Spolstra, I've always been extremely impressed from a tactical perspective. He maximizes talent and he doesn't he never puts his own feelings about a player or his own guide of what of how a team should play above maximizing their potential. That's a very big deal because there are a lot of coaches that simply will not adjust. Um, if you're too stuck in the idea of positions and you can't embrace versatility, mm-hmm. that can really be a, a hindrance on you. Um, if you're too focused on offense to where you just do not commit to defense, Mike D'Antoni, as much as I love his game, um, that's a huge problem. For Spolstra, he's always going to start with the idea that, look, if we don't get a stop, it's not going to matter. Like We're just never going to be able to score enough unless we get a stop. Like We have to play good defense. And so even no matter who rotated in, he would have old guys, he would have young guys. He would, I've always been impressed with his ability to get young guys. He gets young guys to defend at a very high level. Norris Cole mm-hmm. was a plus defender for them. He really That's was. Right. Like, yeah. As much as Heat fans freaked out about him, it was on a comparative level. I would much rather have Norris Cole's defense than a lot of the guys that are on a lot of these other rosters. So he always maximizes that kind of system. So I have faith, if nothing else, that he's going to take the athletic talents that he has with Richardson and Johnston and you know even Dragic and Whiteside and, and Winslow, and, and he's going to construct yeah. A defense that's going to be effective. He's going to construct a defense that will work. And offensively, the best thing is that he's always been willing to change his style. 
You know, like Pat Riley was never on board with the idea of small ball, and yet, and yet, right. Spolstra was like, "Look, this is how we're going to beat this team. This is how we have to win. This is what makes us the best." And Riley, to his credit, supported him. And then last year, you saw the same kind of thing where he could have stuck with that same approach even with Bosch out, and they would have just dragged to the finish line trying to fill in minutes of power forward. But instead, he was like, "Look." we got to switch to offense because that's what we've got now with Chris out. Like we've got to just spread the floor and launch. And that was a genius move. And uh, to a degree, it's a gamble that worked out because you're putting Dang, who's never been a consistent shooter as a stretch four. But that's also like, that's a move of, of really, that's an in that's it's inventive and it's finding solutions it to the problems as they arise. He's in an interesting position too, because so much of Spolstra's career, he, you know, even before the Big Three, he was so much of a mentee to to Pat Riley. And during the Big Three, you know, he talked about, and media, local media talked a lot about how he was very, very willing to say, "Okay, LeBron, whatever you want in this la- um, for this last possession," or give up, you know, authority, so to speak, to LeBron or Dwayne Wade. And now, without those guys in the locker room. Who's he going to give that authority up to? Who's who's he going to entrust in those last couple minutes of the game and fall back on? Not to say that he, it was a vice of his or anything, but he was very willing, like famously willing, to not overcoach the Heat. And now, with all these young guys and all these question marks, he might, for the first time, kind of have to overcoach the Heat, which is an interesting position for him to be in. Yeah, I think that's going to be tough. Um, you wonder if one of the young guys will step up. Like I, I, just, I have a lot of confidence in Tyler. I just really do. I think that he's he's got such potential um, to take a step forward. I think he and Josh both have have a, a really good potential. I think I like what I've seen from both of those guys. Do you think Tyler's um, contract is a bad contract? No, I don't. Need, I don't at all because a lot uh, of Heat fans do. Huh? Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I think <laughs> I guess here's the thing. It's. It's not a bad contract if you re-sign Dwayne Wade. Like that's ah, there's like, the rub. That that's what I feel like is is I, I like Tyler Johnson a lot. And I thought he was worth that that contract, and I, I like Hassan Whiteside a lot, and I like that contract. But when they let Wade go, my first thought was, you're willing to put that money towards Tyler Johnson and Hassan Whiteside, but not towards Dwayne Wade. Like that's what continues to stick with me is is if it's an either or which it clearly was that's where i feel that they made the wrong decision um but as far as individual value especially in this market i mean look it's just hard to say what is value in this market at this point a lot of the contracts were all over the place this summer was unreliable in its results because for as many contracts as there were that people absolutely lost their minds over you had a festus azili getting almost nothing um you had guys getting less than their market value and you know they were in a situation where Brooklyn had a specific need and was willing to put that offer out there. Um, and if nothing else, credit to Miami for saying like, "Look, we got to keep youngsters in the pipeline," because uh, it would have been real easy for Riley to just go down the veteran route. And credit to him for being like, "No, we got to like we got to keep this pipeline." With there's a there's a there is an undercurrent in Miami. And Memphis kind of has the same thing of young guys that are going to come up at the same time. And some of them will will succeed, and some of them will fail. But there, you have to have kind of an underpinning of young guys, so that you're not just left on a vine when the old guys get past the point of of being able to contend. You talk about players that uh, you know we were able to sign on, on great value, and I feel like you're kind of tossing us a, a softball there because you know one of those players, uh, you know, you've heard Wes and I discuss quite a bit. That's Deion Waiters. 
we were able to get on a very financially friendly deal for two years with a player option. You know, we, we are supportive of Dion signing here in Miami, and we think that there's a good chance for him to continue to, to become a, a more consistent player. Um, we know that you're, you're – I don't know if you're necessarily a big fan, but I know you did want to discuss waiters. What, what is it that you feel, you know, his signing does as far as being able to reshape the narrative surrounding him and, and the team itself? So I heard your last episode, and it really like I just my, my brain was buzzing after listening to your app, your your episode on Dion. So um, for those listening, go find the episode where they talked about Dion Waiters, and then come back. Um, so a couple of things here. Um, you guys were were really right on a, on a number of things in terms of what Dion provides. The versatility that he gives them is irreplaceable because uh, it is just what we're finding in the NBA is that there are a lot of guys who are athletic and can defend and there are a lot of guys that can handle the ball but we don't see a lot of guys that can handle the ball and are versatile enough to defend at a high level especially at multiple positions and waiters is able to do all of those things um and he has some scoring ability and he really found a niche last year he turned me around so much i had him as like my 14th best free agent on the market and i was stunned when no one else was willing to gamble on him i understand it from the perspective of saying first like well okay see will likely match or two, right. well, we don't have the thunder, so we don't know where he fits in with us. And he's just notoriously, just from a personality standpoint, kind of a knucklehead. So I get a lot of that. But I would just look at his situation to be like, that kid made real strides on the basketball court in terms of being willing to sacrifice to win. Last year was the first time where he really said, I don't need the ball in my hands. I don't have to shoot every time. I don't have to have this big role. Like He deferred a lot in the playoffs. And then... In a given situation, when they would blitz Randy Foy, Foy trusted Waiters to make the play, and Waiters did. And being opportunistic and understanding your, your role, like all of those things, I think are really good. Now, if Deion Waiters goes into next year and is like, this team needs a creator. I've got to be the guy that does this for them. It's going to be bad. He's got to be constrained within the limits of a team structure devoted to winning. If they start to struggle and somebody needs to step up, that's where you start to get in trouble with Deion Waiters is when... He starts trying to be the guy that he was drafted to be rather than the player that he actually is. Um, one thing that does need to be clear, though, you guys talked, the word narrative was thrown around a lot in that podcast. And this is a very, very big thing to me. I, on NBA Twitter, on NBA Internet, and NBA blogs, the word narrative is treated as if it is inherently a negative and false concept. That's not accurate. A narrative is a okay. storyline. Okay. And there are true narratives and there are false narratives. And the problem is a lot of the narratives about Dion Waiters are true. He did think that he was more than he was for many years in Cleveland. And then again, in the beginning part of his run with Oklahoma City, it took him a while to understand that. Now, he could have grown past that, but that doesn't make those narratives false. They were definitely true at the time. So the concern with Dion is that he's going to go back to that, especially in a situation in which he lost out on $3 million and is one of the few players to not get massively overpaid. That presents a whole host of risks. If Dion Waiters goes into the season looking at it like, I have got to recoup value, that's going to be an absolute disaster. And that's a very plausible scenario. So Eric Solster and staff has got to do a good job of keeping him within a role concept, of keeping him within the understanding of, we need you to help us win. I don't need you to be my star. I need you to help us win. I do not need you to be my star. And that's going to be tough when Dion looks across at Hassan Whiteside and says, 
why is that guy who was out of the league four years ago more important in a bigger part of your future than me? Hmm. I think that it's it could be bad in a sense of dysfunctional, but could be great in a sense of Dion Waiters in a contract year. <laughs> and with no Dwayne Wade, I mean, that could be something fun to watch. Uh, I think that you're right. I think a lot of his narrative was true about him being a knucklehead and so on, but it's also his opportunity now, I think, you know, from whether or not we believe this or not, he said that, you know, he he gave up bigger contracts, he gave up more money so that he could find a good situation in Miami. I think it is, not to keep throwing the narrative word around, but I think it is a good opportunity for him, just for Dion himself to overcome his past, to overcome the the dysfunction that was so much of his career since he came into the league as the fourth overall pick in the draft. I think this is a really good situation for him. And if, if, if we believe that he did have other more lucrative offers that he turned down to find himself in a stable situation, I mean, yes, it's all talk and it's only ink to paper, but that's a good sign. That's a sign in the right direction that maybe that, you know, his playoff experience with Oklahoma City last season and, Maybe he's starting to turn the corner into that right mindset that the Heat really want. But yeah, I think. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that that positive situation, as far as what Dion's seeing, is the opportunity to be kind of uncaged and be as productive as he wants. Like put up a lot of big gaudy stat lines and not necessarily fit into a, a team team wide scheme. And that's the whole problem with having you know a lack of leadership and maybe a team that's not necessarily um, you know has the you know an eye on the playoffs or. You know, there's so much that could go possibly wrong there. I think when he's saying that, you know, it's a good situation for him, it's one where he feels maybe that he could dominate and be the star player in that team. And that, that kind of feeds what Matt was saying earlier, where it could be potentially disastrous if he's just looking to jack up as many shots as possible and potentially cost the, the Heat a few games here and there. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to have that guy that's going to, like Kevin Durant was the guy that was going to tell him, like, mm-hmm. don't try and do too much. Like, right. Like, we are in this game and we can win this. Just do your job. Like, that's a big thing that, that great teams coach. And the Heat coach it. And that's a great environment. I think coaching can help to a, a great degree, but you really need that floor leadership. You need a player to be able to establish the hierarchy and, and provide that kind of perspective. And I do think that you're right that his choosing in Miami is a sign of maturity. Like, that's him saying, I don't just want to go to a bottom feeder I do want to go somewhere where I can really help contribute a team. Like, we don't know what a team like Denver or Philadelphia or somewhere else would have offered him. Um, I'm sure that in time, those offers, like, some of that will come out at some point when someone talks to his agent or to Dion himself. But, you know, he chose to go to a team that has very real playoff intentions. Like, they, whether whether they'll make it or not, like, the Heat have very serious playoff intentions. They, They intend to win games next year. Um, and he knows that he's not the best player going on to that team. He's not going to get every shot that he wants, and this is an opportunity for him to really recoup his value, and if he's really gotten the idea that if I help a team win, that's going to get me paid, then that will really help him. The problem is he's just coming off a year where he did that. He was instrumental in that team beating San Antonio. Like, I, it, 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 Honestly, I'm a little, I've never thought I would say this after crushing him in Cleveland. I'm a little mad for Dion Waiters because I'm like, he... I was up close and personal with that Spurs Thunder series. I covered it start to finish. And to me, the biggest determining factor was that Dion Waiters was able to help them tilt the bench in their favor. Um, He just embarrassed the Spurs on several possessions on both ends of the floor. He made plays 
and he really deserved recognition for that. And if I'm him, I'm going and wondering like, you know, I did all that and I didn't get paid. So now what do I got to do? And that I, I think is cause for some concern with where he's at mentally. But if that's not where he's at, if he's like, no, I really started to understand how we can win basketball games and I have to trust that the rewards will come if I'm a part of a winning culture, um, then it'll be great and it'll be really successful. I mean, look, when Zach Randolph got to Memphis at a much older age, his reputation was horrible. I mean, he was a disaster from his time with the Knicks and the Clippers. I mean, it was horrendous. Tony Allen had a bad reputation when he got to Memphis. Like Memphis has made a, its life around those guys. Like that's who they get is kind of the island of misfit toys. They they admit that themselves. Birdman. Is that these guys are all guys that kind of came in with bad reputations or were or were thought of as throwaways, and they thrive there. But the difference the outside of that of Memphis specifically. Guys' careers, are just, it's hard to predict. And, and you really, I mean, if you told me, if you had told me two years ago that Ty Lawson was not going to be a significant part of any team's future, I would have scoffed. And now, like, I'd much rather have Dion Waiters than Ty Lawson. And that's insane, but that's how it is. <laughs> the, the idea of Whiteside and Waiters on one team is at once terrifying, terrifying and extremely exciting, just from a watchability standpoint. Um, yeah, man, like him running the him running the elbow pick and roll with his like waiters. Waiters has a little bit of the weight in that, um, and sure. I don't like the compa- the comparison is a pure one, but um, that one handed looks like a runner, but it's actually a pick and roll pass. Right. He's got that down to a science, and that with Whiteside could be very devastating. Um, those two in the open floor can be very effective. Like there are going to be times when, like the you know that's a this part of it also is like the Heat are really athletic. I mean, they just have a lot of athleticism at this point, way more than last year on account of, of Deng and, uh, and Wade and, and Amara being gone. Like, this is a very athletic team all of a sudden. Yeah, I think it's a little bit more versatile, and it's funny because if you're trying to find positives for the Heat, it's that this team is more athletic, it's got more versatility, and arguably and should be a better shooting team. But like we've already talked about, it's lost its bite of the veteran leadership and everything like that. I what do you think has to – going into last year, the biggest question was, okay, where is this team going to find shooting? Because guys like Wade and Dang and Drogic and Whiteside are so good near the rim, but where is this team going to find some shooting? That was the big question. Now going into this next season, if the Heat – the Heat are going to be running at the playoffs, what's the biggest question to you? What needs to break right for the Heat to make the playoffs? Justice Winslow has got to take on a much bigger role uh, and in pretty much every facet. Um, Chris Bosh has got to be healthy in return. Um, he doesn't. Okay, I'll say this: they can make the playoffs if Bosh doesn't never plays another game. Um, they can still do it. Where I got this is where I got concerned with the with the Heat after I looked at all their moves. Um, I realized that if Goran Dragic or Hassan Whiteside missed more than ten games with injury, that's it. Hmm. Like that's their margin of error. Because I think if, if either one of those guys is out for any stretch that is not a pure cupcake schedule, like if they're not just playing, you know, Nuggets, Sixers, Lakers in a, in, you know, on a stretched out schedule, if those guys miss 10 games, they're going to be in massive trouble. Um, so, you know, Dragic has got to play the best that he has. Like he's really got to assert himself, which is, has been a continuous ongoing thing. Justice Winslow has got to take a major jump. 
Uh, Dion has got to be able to contribute and do a little bit of creation without trying to do too much. Hassan's got to stay plugged in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the shooting, I think, is going to regress a little bit. I think that they're probably going to go back down because, you know, a lot of that was Spolster really kind of duct taped together a shooting offense, and Dang was a huge part of that. Um, I have a lot of concerns about, like, their bench guys, I just have a lot of concerns about. I'm not a James Johnson guy. I'm not a Derek Williams guy. Um, I just don't know how, how much those guys can give you. Um, they're going to need Tyler to, I think, play a huge role. I think Tyler's going to have to really play a big role for that team um, in doing a lot on both ends for them. I, I think there's a lot of question marks. I think that it's going to, they're going to have to be a defensive team first and foremost. I will say that they can't, they can't go back and they can't win, pick up where they left off last year. They're going to have to get back to, wow, this is a really athletic, scrappy defense that Eric Spolcher has once again configured, um, and they're going to win enough games to keep them into it. It'll depend on the schedule, quite honestly. Um, if they get a really good opening stretch, if their if their November through January schedule is cupcake heavy, if they have a backloaded schedule, they will find a way to win enough games down the stretch to make the playoffs. But they need to front load a lot of their wins, I think, in terms of how their schedule balance works out. Um, you didn't mention Josh Hurts, and are you a believer in his game? Because we we envision him. Wes and I as being the starter with Dion yeah. and Tyler yeah. being potential backups. But I, I think he's a strong player and his shooting, we saw it up close in the summer league and I know it's summer league, but still I think, you know, an extension of last year. And I think he's got a lot of versatility. He can play a number of positions. He's a hell of a defender. We saw that in the playoffs. So we think he's going to be a, a kind of guy you can build on for, for the future. And he's going to be a nice piece next season. So you're a believer as well then. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm huge on Josh Richardson. Absolutely. I mean, look, you know, okay, 40, 40, 46% on 115 three-point attempts isn't a huge sample. Um, sure. But the capacity is there, right? Like, you just need somebody that can do it a little bit, even if next year he drops down at age 23 to, to you know, 36%. That's a, that's a, you know, a, a huge drop and 10 percentage points. But that's all they really need is just like a couple of above-average shooters, and they're fine. Um, I think that I think this is what's ironic. Spolster is so, or not Spolster, Riley is so against a young team. But mm-hmm. you know, Tyler, Josh, and Justice—that's a great three young guy lineup. Like that's Absolutely. those are three really good young guys. Um, that gives them a lot of potential, I think, to to make a run. I think the same can be said. You know, you can be based off of Hassan's NBA career. I think you can make the same kind of. That's what's interesting about Hassan is you can describe him as a veteran or a young guy, and they both kind of fit. <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, with with Tyler at twenty four and Josh at twenty three, and Justice with as young as he is, that's a three man lineup that I think if I were Heat fans, I would be very excited about. Like those guys, to me, honestly, I'm more excited about what those guys can show than I am about Goran at this point. I think that Hassan has the potential, but I. I as part of me just thinks that Hassan's going to be what Hassan is, right? It's going to be some nights he's going to look like an absolute dominant Wilt Chamberlain freaking nature. And on other nights, he's going to want to make you tear your hair out with his decision making and with him disengaging. I just think it's going to be all over the place with him. Um, and to that degree, you know, you can't rely on him. And so you want to see these other guys really step up. And I'm excited about their young core. I think that they've got really great potential. I just, I can't get past how much of a steal Justice Winslow was because. 
I continue. Everyone last year, I, I took a lot of grief for how I evaluated the rookies at the end of the year because I thought Justice was was up there for probably in the top four or five for the best rookies of the year. I think probably, honestly, I would have had him behind Towns, Jokic, Porzingis. And then I'm probably looking at Justice because I saw the impact that he can have. And that's that's a really right. big deal. Being able to impact a playoff team is not more impressive because I, I value the stats and being the, the main guy, but it is just as impressive to me as putting up those numbers on a bad team. Like, Justice isn't Carl Anthony Towns level, but like, right. do I like Winslow's upside as much as I do Michael K. Gilchrist's? Way more, actually, at this point because of his shooting prowess, which I think is untapped. And then I look at it and you say, like, well, can he be Kawhi Leonard? And I say, yeah, based off of what we thought Kawhi was going to be at this point in his career, I think Justice Winslow can be just as good as Kawhi Leonard. Well, they talk a lot about wanting his playmaking ability, and that was one of the big talking points in Summer League was making sure that he had the, the ball in his hands to create his opportunities, that he was able to maximize those in really limited numbers last season. And they're thinking that next year, especially now with Wade gone, that he's going to have that opportunity he's going to be the starter you know whatever position he wants to play either the three or four he's going to be looked at as the 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 obvious playmaker there because you know there's going to be a need for that but um yeah i think a lot of fans especially you know in miami they love him but i think a lot of people especially nationally think of him being somewhat one-dimensional because his offensive repertoire is so lacking and you know i think i think most people see that there's potential there for growth and and clearly i think even he admits that and you know there is but, uh, yeah, I think his stealing is a high one. I think most people would agree that he was definitely a steal and, and a, a big part of Miami's future. But um, you, you mentioned uh, pulling your hair out and not knowing exactly which way to go with something. So we wanted to bring up something completely unrelated to basketball. Um, you know, with the, this week, with the number of bad reviews coming out for Suicide Squad, uh, we wanted to get your take on, on that movie because I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're a comic book guy, aren't you? Yeah, I am. I was growing up, and my brother, my brother, was big into them, and so he was 11 years older than me. So when he left, I had like this tr- this huge trove of them. Um, nice. So I got into them, and and so yeah, I, like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Marvel dude, so I'm a little bit predisposed against these kind of movies. But it's just like the reviews are so bad. It's just <laughs> like they're Rio Olympics bad. Like in that. Even if you thought it was going to be bad, the actual stuff comes out and it's worse. That's how Suicide Squad is seeming. Like, I'm going to try and probably get out tomorrow or the next night to go see it. But <laughs> but see, that's that's the funny part. You know that they're bad and you're still going to go see the movie. You can't help yourself. It's just like... So I knew Batman versus Superman was going to be a train wreck. I went yeah. to hate watch Batman versus Superman. Okay. And then here, here's what was funny about Batman versus Superman. I went into that movie knowing I was going to dislike it watched it, walked out, and was like, well, that wasn't as bad as it could be. Like, it wasn't good. It was definitely not a good movie. But it wasn't as bad as it could have been. And it took about two hours. And then two hours later, I was like, man, like, F that movie. I was <laughs> mad. Like, the more I thought about it, I got more and more angry. Um, it's a bummer because Suicide Squad actually features characters that I'm actually kind of interested in. Uh, and I was kind of excited for them to kind of pull off something in like it just you want to see like an interesting one um and just the fact that they're trying so desperately to copy like guardians of the galaxy and failing so miserably and just like they just can't i mean a lot of it is is that snyder's the one in charge of their whole property system but it's just 
I don't know. And I, I also find it interesting that there is a, such a backlash from the hardcore fans, of which I am not one, of any right. sort of, of anything in the universe, really, except, like, Wilco and sub sandwiches are the only things <laughs> I'm really d- devoted to. Soup. I I love soup. Um, Big soup guy. Yeah, well, I make a lot of them. Um, I had to start cooking because my wife doesn't cook. And in the yeah, winter, when you're in Colorado, and it's, like, 20 degrees every day for nine months, you just want anything to warm you up. So, like... I got really good at making good soups, especially my wife's vegetarian, which is a huge pain in the ass. So, like, if you're vegetarian and it's cold, what are you gonna cook? Like, you make soup. Heat so anyway, fan, but heat like, fan listeners might not exactly relate to that. And <laughs> yeah, and go to hell for that, by the way. <laughs> at least they're at least my I'm virus free out here. Um, <laughs> so it's crazy that the that these that the Suicide Squad movie is so like just universally renowned as bad in these reviews because superhero movies almost inherently are kind of supposed to be almost like kind of bad that they're good and like, nobody's going bad. in being like like nobody's going into suicide squad being like i'm expecting a serious film that discusses our times like that's why nolan's batman series was such an outlier because like you walked out of nolan's batman series being like wow that movie actually had something to say like, that movie had themes and, like, mm. concepts. And the cinematography was interesting. Like, those are just good movies that happen to be about a dude that dresses up as a giant bat, right? But, like, <laughs> no yeah. one's going into Age of Ultron being, like, I'm expecting a referendum on technology and the dangers of artificial intelligence. Like, that's not what anybody's going in there. They're like, no, I want to see, like, giant robots versus superheroes. And so there's, like, these low expectations that all you need in a summer movie is for it to be fun and have some sort of coherent tone and plot. And yet all of the reviews are like, there's no consistent tone. There's no consistent plot. Everything <laughs> is half-assed. It is, it is like, so there's those, you know, there's like um, ratatouille and other like Cajun dishes that are basically just like you throw a bunch of stuff in a pot, right? right. Yeah. And that's like the good way of like, oh, I just threw some stuff from my pantry into a pot and it was good. And then there's like, when you're in college and... You don't. You have like a. You have very few things in the fridge, and so you just are like, maybe I can make something out of this. And you wind up making monstrosities that make your girlfriend sick. Not that I have personal experience with this. Ramen noodles and ketchup doesn't work. Like that is what Suicide Squad is. Like that is what Suicide, or at least seems to be, according to reviews. I will wait to to judge. I am gonna be really interested to see how people react to it. That's what I find actually most interesting about like this new era of superhero movies is that is watching normal, quote-unquote, normal human beings react to them. Like, Zach Harper's not a comic book di- dude, right. my, my buddy at CBS. And so watching him go through the process of watching superhero movies is always interesting, because, like, half the time he's like, I don't really get what this is about. Like, I don't know why I was supposed to care about this. And so watching, like, that whole thing is kind of interesting to see. These things, which have so much kind of iconic uh, stature in the comic book world, get translated and how normal people are like, well, that was weird. <laughs> that, that was kind of my feeling with Batman vs. Superman. I, there was a, a many, many times, many, many moons ago, Dave and I talked about Batman vs. Superman. I told him, there's no way in hell I'm going to go see that. It doesn't make any sense. Why would Superman and ba- Batman be fighting? It makes no sense to me. And I was on a plane from Boston out here back to Oakland, and um, they had it on on uh it was the in-flight movie and i was like all right i guess i'll just watch this thing um david seemed really excited about it and i just i watched it and i and i you know i was kind of had the i enjoyed it i mean it got me it was 
you know, I was on a plane. I didn't really have many other options. So I just, I watched it on that tiny screen and it was better than I thought. It was, I was very confused by a lot of things. I didn't really understand why um, Lex Luthor ended up like waist deep in a lake somewhere that turned him into an alien or something after he slid his hand. I don't understand. I got completely lost in that part, but you know, I, I feel like I'm one of those normal people that just kind of like, well, that was interesting. It was kind of weird, but that, that fight scene at the end was pretty dope. Just, I mean, just a mishmash. Like, Batman vs. Superman was just, like, nine movies crammed into one. Like, there's just, mm. you have to, I, I will say it's interesting, though, because it does show, like, you're mentioning, you know, how you make a bad superhero movie. And the fact is, is that it's the same way you make any bad movie. If you don't have, if you don't have consistent tone, and you don't have consistent plot, and you, the audience is continuously wondering, like, what is ha- happening here? Like, where, what, why is this, why are they doing this? If you confuse your audience... Not a good. That's thing. where I think right. you've you've pretty much messed up. It's which if my girlfriend is com- com- consistently turning to me and be like, "Wait, why is he evil now?" Then that's a bad movie. <laughs> yeah, like that's a problem, right? And like this is what's impressive is Christopher Nolan made probably the best superhero movies of all time, and this is the dude that made both Memento and Inception, two movies that are pr- specifically designed to disorient and confuse you. Yeah. <laughs> Very good point. Yeah, very good point. Well, I, I, I think that pretty much wraps it up. That's as good a point as any to to, to close this conversation. We can bring it Thanks all full again circle for joining whatever, us. whatever Pat Riley did just disoriented and confused all Heat fans and <laughs> we don't know what to do. Oh, my God. If you guys want to like the Suicide Squad, that's going to be rough. Oh, boy. Jared Leto would, would be awesome in South Beach. That's all I'm saying. But, um, all right. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Hey, guys. Thanks. We really appreciate it. I I love the podcast. I'm a listener. Everyone should subscribe to both you and all the other Locked On podcasts. And thanks so much for all your work. This has been the Locked On Heat podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Rate us, review us, say nice things about us, and we'll catch you next time. Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best-selling LED light bulbs. Our four-pack of LED bulbs is $9.99. And our two-pack of LED floodlights is only $12.99. Buy one, get one free. There's no limit on how much you can save, so stock up now. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free on long-lasting 10-year LED bulbs, now through Monday, only at your neighborhood Ace. See participating stores for details.